Talk about this, talk about that. Chuck Yates needs a job. I had a point, I don't know where it's at. Chuck Yates needs a job. Welcome everybody to episode 12 of Chuck Yates Needs a Job. We're actually coming to you on Martin Luther King Day from the uh, studio. And we'll get into this in just a second, but uh, we all need to take today. And if you get a chance, read the letter from a Birmingham jail. I think it says a lot of things that we need to hear today. And I think Martin Luther King did an amazing job articulating civil disobedience and the way it should be done. I made my kids listen to it in the car this afternoon as we were uh, driving around. And it really is something that I think every American needs to hear. So put that on your list. But tonight is really, really cool. We've, uh, we've got Jeff Davies in the studio tonight, better known as Energy Credit One, oil and gas OG, the original gangster, him of the 20,000 followers. And while, Jeff, in fairness, I don't think you've ever hid who you are, this might be a little bit of a coming out party for you, huh? For sure, for sure. Since, you know, since I've been asked, uh, or anytime I've been asked, I have never hit it. Uh, I put content out that if you dig hard enough, you can find. But uh, the anonymous works for many reasons, but I've uh, certainly been open to disclosing who I am. And uh, here it is. Breaking news. This is so much more yeah. exciting than Lindsay and P- Pizzagate. Sorry, Lindsay, but this is real. This is real news. So, Jeff, one, thanks for coming in. Two, thanks for making it all the way to Richmond. I think it's cool to do it in the studio. Um, And three, tell us your background. Where'd you come from? How'd you get into energy? What's your story? Okay, so I'll start from really undergrad and and move forward, I guess. So grew up in upstate New York, uh, undergrad at uh, SUNY Binghamton. I end up in Charlotte, North Carolina, starting to work for First Union, which is now, uh, I guess, went through Wachovia and then is now Wells Fargo, effectively. Spent uh, three or four years at First Union working in a defined contribution group, so really working with 401k plans. Spent three years there in a uh, research role on a loan syndications desk. I guess around that time, I did my MBA at night. Uh, the research role was really helping the syndicate desk, you know, put out kind of content around what the or or due diligence around what the structure and pricing of deals look like circa 2003 i roll into a portfolio management group where i start to be uh, an analyst on utility industry you know at the time cds or credit default swaps were big back then so the bank was using cds to basically manage the portfolio um you know, I would re- underwrite revolvers, underwrite term loans, work with the risk group, and then we would use credit default swaps to basically, you know, imagine a scenario where a banker wants to contribute or, or commit $150 million to XYZ Bank. Risk manager wanted only 100. We would lay off 50 million of the risk, uh, turn around and fund that short by a diversifying trade for the portfolio by uh, getting long another credit that we had less exposure to, 
via bank debt, high yield bonds, investment grade bonds, or writing CDS protection. So I did utilities for a few years, or excuse me, a few, half a year to a year. Uh, back in those days, a uh, number of utilities had energy arms, so EMP arms. So that was my first exposure to the energy space. About a year into that, I was asked to cover the energy industry. At the time, I'm in North Carolina, uh, energy group at Wachovia was down here in Houston. Um, uh, who's, who's in that group then? Was that was James Kipp in that group? That okay. was the head back in those days, I believe. That's a long time ago. Yeah. And and then, you know what's in? So this is kind of interesting, small world. Um, First Union actually worked with Kane Anderson to buy out the GP interest of Plains All-American way back in the day. And, and the partnership was actually called Kafu. And I think Welford Tabor worked on it did you uh overlap that doesn't ring a bell but i'm not surprised i mean yeah if if you think of mlps in the midstream space it's a retail product and wells fargo wachovia as well as uh, merrill lynch were the biggest players in that space because they had the biggest retail brokerage arms right right yep um so i started covering energy in 2004 you know, just to hit on some of the stuff that we did with like credit default swaps, we did a lot of structured stuff where if you think of like a TXU energy back in those days, more utility, of course, but uh, uh, myself and a guy, uh, Mike Kolosowski actually is his name that, you know, we came up with this trade where we could basically arb an opportunity between the CDS market and the syndicated loan market. We went and so you had a syndicated loan facility. We would go to TXU and say, hey, you have this uh, syndicated facility. Let us take that on a bilateral basis. We'll take the entire 400 million, put it on our balance sheet, turn around and lay it off entirely into the CDS market, take a spread out of it. That deal we did was actually 50 bips uh, for five years running. We structured it so that, you know, if they took it out early, we got paid, we got a make whole basically. But it actually ended up being a home run for the bank. When TXU was LBO'd, the bank was sitting on $400 million of CDS short position. Right. They got a make hole on, on the trade that TXU had to take it out. And they got the mark to market of $400 million of CDS blowing up, basically. Right. Well, so, and plus you got 50 basis points when you did it. it I mean, that it, is just stunning to hear. 50 basis points in anything. <laughs> right, right, right. So, and, and back in those days, so we then started looking at, back in those days, ENPs, if you recall, they weren't sharing the collateral with the revolver for their hedge facilities. You actually had to have a uh, an LC facility backing the mark to market on your uh, hedge facility, basically. So we would do the same thing with a number of ENPs and say, hey, you have this syndicated facility backing your hedge book. We can do that on a bilateral basis. We would turn around and lay off 100% of the risk into the CDS market and just take out a spread, basically. So it was kind of super interesting stuff. We were doing in credit default swaps. Uh, As worked through a number of those trades, I got asked to move to a prop desk. So that's around 2005, 2006, I guess. Um, You know, the prop desk, we were trading... And what's prop? 
just for the audience. Yeah, proprietary trading. So gotcha. we're trading the capital for the bank's balance sheet at that point. We actually, I think we had four billion of capital at that time. You know, you're talking a group of seven or eight individuals, analysts and traders. You know, I was in charge of covering energy as well as tech, media, and telecom. We had a pretty short short staff for our small staff for the, from the research side, but we traded investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, convertible bonds, structured credit and distressed bonds. Um, you know, we actually, so 2006, 2007, we uh, were slightly under budget. Uh, it's kind of one of the worst trades in the history of banking. We had a, a management change where the head of corporate credit at Wachovia at the time got replaced. And we started reporting up through structured credit, the head of structured credit, a guy by the name of Curtis Arledge, who's actually had a great career, Blackstone and various other places. Uh, but Curtis decided, hey, I can make more money with that $4 billion of capital and put it into structured products at the time. So you're talking, uh, you know, more package mortgage loans and those types right. of things. <laughs> so at 2007, 2008, it's actually one of the things, one of the decisions that ended up imploding Wachovia, quite frankly. Um, so For, force the shotgun marriage. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, my group got shut down. Uh, all of us had to look for jobs. I enjoyed the convert arb trade because you could both look at credit as well as equity. I ended up finding a just to go backwards how I find it. So, you know, undergrad in economics, uh, MBA in finance, did my CFA. Actually, through the CFA website, found you know came across a convert arb fund up in Minneapolis. Joined that fund in early 2007. Uh, it was about 400 million at the time. You know, got got asked to be the energy analyst, utility energy analyst, tech, media, telecom analyst. We had five investment professionals. Uh, you know, a couple marketing folks, three programmers. So it was a pretty lean shop. You know, our claim to fame was, you know, pretty, I can't, I can't remember 2007, but, you know, 2008 was a disaster for everybody. And we were actually, right. you know, up 12% in 2008. So we went from 400 million in assets to really 2 billion in assets kind of overnight, basically. And, you know, just to hit on that, maybe super quick, uh, you know. Now, are you in Minneapolis? Yeah, I had moved to Minneapolis. Okie doke. Keep keep going, but I'm gonna come back and ask you if you ever saw Prince in a small club. But go ahead, keep going. So, so just, we'll talk music at some yeah, point. Just to hit on you know how luck plays a lot of 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 things in life, or, or leads to you know uh, how you end up in life at the end of the day. You know we had 400 million in assets going into 2008. We actually owned 350 million of countrywide bonds. Um, you know, a convert arb trade, you can leverage that five or six times and it's a fairly safe trade because you have a short stock position against that. But, you know, our view was the CFC, the countrywide bonds would recover 40%, uh, you know, even in a disaster scenario. And so you go through this like mortgage disaster, um, roll into January of 2008, uh, at the time, the so we bought the bonds at par, kept buying all the way down. January 2008, they were at 60 cents. Bank of America buys out CFC. The buy-ins got a make hole basically or got taken out at par. So the day that happened, 
the bonds went from 60 cents to 95 cents, for example. So 30 points on 350 wow. million bonds. And we were short the stock. It was actually a take under. So you made money on both sides of the trade. Right? Holy which, shit. Which cool. was pure luck. You know, it's actually a great. I actually worked for one of the biggest pricks on Wall Street up there, uh, just to be honest. But the guy, you know, give him credit. The, the, the moment that uh, news release hit, he actually stood up on our little trading floor and said, you know, I'm giving all you guys an extra week of vacation and I'm giving you $10,000 to take the vacation. You know, so it was actually a cool moment when that happened. Um, so Wolf of Wall Street kind of like moment. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were in a position in 2009 to be a little bit more uh, aggressive than a lot of different funds because they were down 30%, down 40%, down 50%. The average convert our funds down 40% in 08, we were up 12%. So coming out of that, I actually had started to trade all non-convertible credit. So I'm a research analyst as well as trading credit and had my own book that I started to trade. Uh, got really active in energy, you know, at the time shale starting to take off. I actually through some folks that had reached out to me, got strangely enough, got really uh, in bed with Plateau and Pareto, which are two Norwegian brokers. And at the time they were doing a ton of rig bonds as well. So building out offshore rigs, et cetera, et cetera. So it was doing a ton of stuff with Ocean Rig and, and, and all. Still the, in Minneapolis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So doing a ton of stuff in the rig bond market as well. Um, I guess, you know, between 2009, 2011 had, you know, just a ton of success in, in um, you know, playing the energy space. Uh, like I said, I covered a number of industries, but let's say 75% of my uh, time and activity and trades were, were, were energy based. Um, uh, you know, if you look back at that time, um, you know, like I said, shale was taking off, uh, we're coming out of a recession and it just made a ton of sense to be long. And we, we got long quite frankly. Um, so, right. so, you know, you roll that fast forward, uh, TPH, Tudor Pickering Holt, circa kind of 2011, 2012, we're looking to start a credit effort. They reached out to me through, through a search, you know, headhunter that, that, that put them in touch with me. Um, I actually had a falling out at that fund. Not, not sure we need to go through that, but I had a falling out with that fund. But TPH reach, reaches out to me. Um, I joined TPH in 2012. Um, they actually wanted to start a credit effort with another fund. I won't name the fund, but basically wanted to go out and co-brand a fund. It was going to be distressed credit, direct lending, and structured private equity. Principal business or agency business? Principal business. Gotcha. Principal okay. business. Uh, and the plan was to co-brand this. And basically, that deal fell apart right at the finish line because of concerns on the banking side. If they basically locked arms with one private equity firm, right? how would that impact the rest of the private equity business? Yeah. So, you know, I was still at Minneapolis at the time, but I had actually just, as this was starting to come together, moved down to Houston uh, to the, I, I actually commuted for 18 months uh, back and forth. I would spend a week to two in Houston, week or two back in Minneapolis. So I did that for 18 months. 
Moved down to Houston. The deal falls apart. So I'm kind of saying, okay, gosh, there's no credit effort. What are we going to do here? Uh, I'm working. So let's take a step back. Tudor Pickering has the banking business. It has the equity sales trading research business. It has the asset management business, which a lot of people didn't So has Dan moved over at that point to run the asset management business? That's correct. So I worked for Dan. Um, And just to hit in those guys, I mean, Bobby Tudor is one of the nicest guys I've ever worked for. Okay, here's here's a trivia for you. Only Rice University, the Rice Owls, would name their basketball gym after the career leader in turnovers for the basketball program, Tudor Fieldhouse. I had no no idea. Well, you know what's so funny about that? That's actually not true. But I have said that my whole life, and I hear I hear it actually kind of pisses Bobby off. Going, God damn it, Yates, shut up. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, Bo- I like Bobby. I'm a Rice guy, so right. we get, we gotta like Bobby. Bobby's a great guy. Maynard's a great guy. Um, he and I butted heads certainly from a perspective of he's a banker and I'm a at the time at at, at some point they're at TPH doing distress stuff. Dan can't say enough good things about Dan as well, just a nice guy. Um yeah. so you know, after the credit thing falls apart, Dan and I start working with Texas teachers. This is all public, so I can say it. So we start working with Texas teachers, who's the second biggest, you know, pension in the country, I believe. They at the time were concerned. So this is about 2013. They're concerned about all the stimulus going on around the world. And this all relates to what's happening today. All this stimulus going around around the world. So they carve out a three $3 billion portfolio to basically have an inflation hedge to their broader portfolio. The $3 billion, they had a group of individuals who got put in place with that, had to go through the board, all of that, uh, through the state. But Dan and I basically gave them a bunch of information. You know, this is all you need to basically make these board presentations on energy. Um, and it really as a quid pro quo, to, to say it best, they turned around and gave us this co-investment business that they took from Blackstone or BlackRock. I forget right. which one. Um, started out as kind of, you know, $150 million, got re-upped to $300 million. So I started managing that fund. It was me, Dan, Bobby on the investment committee. Um, you know, basically, so in a co-investment fund, a lot of people don't know this, when you're doing a private equity deal, the lead sponsor may actually syndicate a piece of that check basically out. Yeah. So if you need a, you know, a billion dollar check to do a, you know, a, a $2 billion ec- a private equity deal, you're doing a billion of equity, billion of, of debt. The lead sponsor, if it's KKR, TPG or Apollo may actually go to their uh, LPs and say, hey, I can give you a piece of this outside of the fund to bring your fees down on a no fee, no carry basis effectively, yeah. right? So, so no, that's a, that's a cool thing to bring up to the listeners because I don't know that that's widely known. But, a, you know, when you go out and you raise a private equity fund, that's a big question from the LP base is how much in co-invest can I expect? So if you and I went out tomorrow and raised Energy Credit Nimble Fatty Fund 1, you know, and we raised $500 million, there would be a lot of questions of, okay, I'm committing 25 million to you, but I expect 25 million to co-invest. So they're willing to pay, call it 2% on the 25, 
but they're expecting one person on on 50 because they think they're going to get the co-invest without that. And the other point I want to make about this, just audience interest, you know, because of the, the behind the scenes stuff. The other thing you do is the GP, you're sitting there doing that for your LPs to lower fund, lower fees. The other thing is you do it strategically. Maybe I'm going to let these banks in. Now that's, that's waned here, but back in the day, let's let these banks in. Maybe we get more in the way of credit for them. Let's let these folks in because they're the landowners and we want to put a water system, you know, on their property. And that's going to be a tough, you know, land. So there are a lot of strategic reasons for why that syndication happens, not just we need more money. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to economics and a blended fee is how they look at it. So I'll pay two and 20 with my 7% pref. Right. And I'll pay maybe one in 10 over here for a lot of people try to do it internally, but that's a struggle for a lot of pensions. And yeah. then they may, you know, basically outsource it for a, something less than two and 20. You know, it's kind of how it works. But I mean, just again, for the listeners, what you do in that situation is you get all the diligence, whether it's KKR, TPG, Apollo, all those names, you get all the diligence materials that they've done. You get to basically have calls with the lead sponsor. You get to have calls with the management teams of the company. You decide whether you want to co-invest alongside them. Um, and basically, we would put it in our fund if, if, if we approved it. You know? So you know, that's around 2014 when, when we did that. So you can imagine a lot of those deals didn't exactly work out so great because right. oil's 140, 100 to 140 bucks at the time. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the folks at Texas Teachers wanted to put money to work too, right? They had just gotten their jobs and, hey, you guys need to do deals. You guys need to do deals to show that this was the right thing to do. It wasn't all energy as well. They were doing energy and ag. Um, let me cut you off to ask something here because I don't think this is appreciated by EFT. Um, EFT sits there and says, you, the GP, did shitty deals, blah, 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 blah. I talked about this with BRV and Kitty when they were on, and I want to hear your perspective on it, is if you're Texas teachers, you have a portfolio. You have designed that portfolio such that you have diversification built in. And I don't think EFT uh, appreciates that, hey, we own a lot of Amazon stock. We need to have some energy exposure because Amazon's third largest expense is gasoline for all these trucks and all these planes flying shit all over the place and the like. And so you did deals, you got exposure to energy, that was your mandate, and you were actually, I'm, I'm saying this as a statement, but you, you, you know, contradict me or whatever you want to do with it is, that was your mandate. And quite frankly, if you didn't get them energy exposure, you were doing them the disservice as opposed to you should have known oil was going to go from 120 and on Thanksgiving Day, it was going to drop 15 bucks down to, you know, whatever, 50, 60 dollars a barrel. No, for sure. I mean, they, they look at it from a broad diversification perspective and they, you know, at the end of the day, when you're managing a portfolio that's that big, 
you're trying to manage the unknown risks, not the known risks, right? So when you say, hey, I want an inflation hedge, you don't know whether it's going to happen or not, but you need to carve out a piece of that book and say, in case it happens, we need to be exposed to something that's going to you know, kind of deal with inflation. They ran the scenario that oil fell to 25. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, and, and, and EFT, I love you. Jeff loves you, but there there was pressure to get exposure to energy, and it was broadly recognized by the investor base. Without question. And, you know, looking back, right, were people too bullish? And, and I'll get into this. I certainly at the time was more bearish and within TPH, I think anybody there would say like I was considered the big bear, you know, so I was in a position like, hey, put put money to work and by no stretch of the imagination am, am I saying that I didn't like the deals that I put in there, but you know, there was pressure to put money to work at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you knew if you were putting money to work at 140 bucks, if oil didn't stay at, you know, even 100, if oil didn't stay at 100, like it was gonna be a problem. Right. Um, but, that, you know, that kind of dovetails in. So at, at the time, you know, 2014, I am putting money to work for Texas teachers in a co-investment fund. And I start looking at all the high yield deals that are being done. And I say, gosh, this is basically gas part two to me. You know, I said, like, there's just too much supply coming online. Saw what happened in the natural gas markets, you know, five or six years prior. And, you know, I, I started pitching to the folks internally, we need to raise capital for a short high yield energy fund. Um, you know, I actually had struggle kind of finding the capital through TBH. I knew a guy, an under the radar billionaire up in Minneapolis that I had met or, or knew through some contacts. And I reached out to him um, and, you know, through him and basically some friends of his, we raised a hundred million bucks in kind of the you know, latter half of 2014 and uh, launched a fund to basically short high yield energy credit. Now the guy that gave me the capital, I actually don't want to say his name, but uh, cause he's so much under the radar, but you know, his- It was Prince. No. Tell <laughs> me it was Prince. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. But you know, he, he did 20 years 20 years of 20% a year. He's actually got the biggest McLaren collection in the US. The guy is incredibly successful, under the radar billionaire, carved out a hundred million bucks easily through him and some friends. But he, his claim to fame was he was never long or short the market ever, right? So ever his entire career. Right. Uh, an options guy, a convert our guy. So he gave me the capital, but he's like, I'm not gonna just be short this market. I want you to do it on a long, short basis, right? So. Right. Gave me the money 2015. So I hired a team, had a trader and two analysts and myself on this fund at the time, basically transitioned off the co-investment fund because I can do private stuff and public stuff at the right. same time. Um, and 2015, we were basically flat. The, the, the shorts did great. The, the longs did horrible. Roll into early 2016, uh, went through a period of about two weeks where lost 15% of the capital in about two weeks. The guy that gave me the capital yanked, yanked the capital and, and, and closed the fund down, uh, you know, took us through kind of the fall of 16 to shut everything down. 
But to hit on what happened, and this is probably interesting to EFT, I did a lot of uh, what's called capital structure ARB trades. So you're basically playing pieces of the capital structure within the same company. So you think of, I have maybe a revolver, I have first lien debt, I have second lien debt, I have common equity. You're playing pieces of that against each other. So at the time, you have all these companies that are clearly about to go bankrupt. Let's say you have bonds that are trading at 40 cents on the dollar and you're convinced they can't make it through. Uh, let me short some equity against those bonds. And, you know, you would never do those on a one to one basis. Uh, right. Let's say maybe I own a market value of two million of bonds. I might be short, you know, 300,000 a stock, 400,000 a stock against that bond position and with, with the thesis that uh, basically, as the equity goes to zero, I basically reduce my cost basis in the bond, right? And then I can restructure it and own the upside. Right. What happened in early 2016 was oil caught a bottom, went from 20 to 40, and there was a number of these equities that just took off, and the bonds didn't really budge. I'll hit on that for a second, but a number of the equities went up you know, 200%, 400%, 700%. Lin Energy was one of those. Um, and what was happening on the bond side of the market was all the bonds were getting primed back then, you know, and primed again for the audience means if you have an unsecured bond, the companies were basically coming in and putting secured debt in front of you. So nobody wanted to buy the unsecured stuff because they knew that they were going to get layered. Right. And as that happened, it would crush the unsecured stuff. So the bonds never budged because of that uh, dynamic and the equities took off. And they're just two different markets. Like people think that markets are efficient and, and, and markets kind of know what's going on between the debt market and credit market or equity market and credit market. Really not the case at the end of the day because they're different players, right? So, right. Um, so you know, lost a bunch of money, um, you know, closed the fund down. It was a humbling experience. It was the first time I got to be a, you know, portfolio manager, humbling experience, leave TPH at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, took a couple of years off, actually a few years off, really just spent time with my kids and, and watched the market and, you know, kind of started being active on Twitter and that kind of, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting because at the end of the day, what Brene Brown, you know, and my audience is tired of hearing me talk about, you know, Brene Brown and all the fucking therapy I've had. But the, you know, the 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 core to a man is his ability to fix things, right? I mean, that's our sense of self-worth. Woman, it's body image. Us, it's being able to fix things. And so, you know, you sitting there saying I couldn't fix the fund. I mean, that's like that. That's the nut kick of all nut kick, you know, for a guy. For sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, and, and you look back like the trades were the right trades, right? Because had I just been able to sustain it and, and you know, at the end of the day, it was my job to manage the risk. So I'm throwing nobody under the bus but, I, but myself. But I had guys working for me. I had a good buddy that moved from Chicago to Houston. So it was it wasn't just me, it was other people that had, right. you know, impacted. Um, but to not be able to manage those trades and get through that and 
and you know certainly at the time like i was very bearish right i was super bearish still and right. uh both on prices and just based on kind of i just you know i i hate to use the word ponzi on shale and i wouldn't use the word ponzi but i just knew that like you know there was too much cash going out than there was coming in and it was going to come home to roost right so i knew i was right but i couldn't last long enough to stay in that trade you know yeah no i mean it's you know uh bob sanat who was uh ceo of kane for the vast majority of the time i was there always said all of us can identify a short you need to tell me the event that's going to happen so that the rest of the world agrees with you and it's really interesting i mean you know think of tesla today I mean, at the end of the day, I believe that every business ought to trade at four to six times EBITDA in normal growth GDP type stuff, right? You got a lot of CapEx, maybe you're three to four, you don't have much CapEx, you're six to seven, right? If you go put that on Tesla and work backwards, there's no way they get there, right? So clearly that's a short, but I can't tell you what the event is to make the rest of the, the world happen. and so. You know, I totally get you had to go through that. So those two years, you're hanging out with your kids. How do you get through that? I mean, how? I mean, because you know, when a fund fund implodes, and I, and the only reason I'm busting your balls on this and asking is go listen to my episode two. You know, it's me and my priest going through my lowest moments. But so, how are you getting through that? I mean, therapy, God. Hanging out with the kids, fucking around in your own head. What's going on? A, a lot of fucking around in my own head, for sure. Um, you know, I fortunate for me, I, I live on a small little lake that I did a lot of fishing. You know, I'd kind of just go out and catch some bass. Um, um, Fish don't die right, by the way. I mean, that's just. A, <laughs> but anyway, keep going. Uh, you know, really, yeah. you know, you, you gotta, you gotta lean on your family, right? At the end of the day, it, it hasn't been easy. If I'm being honest with you, and I'm still dealing with it, and it's still, you know, it's still something that I look back on and say, "Gosh, you know, I wish I had made," you know, because you can just like let your mind go crazy on the what ifs if you want to at the end of the day and that's what drives you nuts um you know so it's 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 you know talking with my dad my dad's really my best friend um right. not only my father but my best friend it's one of the greatest things i've ever been told in my life is um, back when i was at stevens an investment banker we worked on a deal with a guy didn't get the deal done but he and i became really good friends and when his father died I called him, you know, hey, what's going on? And he wasn't in a good spot. I actually went over, you know, I said, hey, man, I'm going to just come over, came over, went and ate dinner. And it was really interesting about, you know, four or five martinis in. His line was about his father. That's the last bit of free advice I'll ever get. And so, it's so true. So, so true. So true. Um, you know, my dad's my sounding board. My dad's my, like I said, my best friend. And, um, you know, my wife's been there for me. My kids have been there for me. Um, you know, but it, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's a humbling experience and, and, you know, you know, you only get so many shots in this business right. and, you know, to kind of strike out like I did, it, it, it sucked to be honest with you. 
um you know but i guess to just yeah no i mean it was uh you know for me it was kind of like oh man i'm in the wall street journal fuck for being fired <laughs> you know so i, I mean it, the good thing chuck i didn't even know about that i hadn't heard about that so it, was, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't as wide as you thought your situation sounds worse than mine i guess if it was that public i i you know my fun was rather small um in the grand scheme of things but uh you know at the end of the day it's uh so you base you basically kind of self-medicated for sure yeah Gotcha. I mean, you know, I, I spent probably six or nine months of just kind of hanging out, doing stuff. I mean, I'd go to the local bar and drink a couple beers and kind of yep. come home and exercise and think about life and what I want to do. And, you know. So, so this is important because, I mean, where we are as an industry and we're going to get to this at some point, but I mean, dude, you fucking raised $200,000 for people um, for uh, oil-filled helping hands, and we'll get to that at some point. But everybody's going through kind of that shit. Is there one or two things, given that you went through it, that you would say to those folks? Because hopefully they're listening, you know? What did you learn? I mean, you know, I, I'd say this about my situation and I'd say it about many situations in life. Like people get so obsessive of feeling like they are the only ones that have these problems, right? So the best advice that I could give anybody in not only kind of acute situations where you lose your job or kind of go through a humbling experience like I did is, man, you need to recognize that I don't care how like I don't care if it's your neighbor or your friends, et cetera, you think they have this perfect life. Like everyone has shit they're dealing with, right? Everybody has anxieties. Everybody is going through stuff that you may think they have a perfect family. You may ha think they have the perfect life, but that's just not how it works, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, take a step back and say, you know what, this isn't just me and other people are dealing with shit and they get through it and I can get through it as well. You know, so that's one thing that I would say and, you know, you know, to that point, it was interesting on episode two of my podcast when I'm talking to my priest, Patrick, one of, I think, the most powerful phrases in the world is, yeah, man, me too, you know, because as a guy, like we were talking about earlier, our sense of self-worth is we can fix things. And when we can't fix things, that's what leads to drinking too much destructive behavior, all of that sort of stuff, you know, being pissed off, yelling, you know, all that shit we do that's bad. And what's kind of really, you know, when you're, when you're like going through all that, the only way to get out of it, unfortunately, is to sit there and talk about it. Shame hates words, you know, because what we're feeling shame and the only way to do it is talk about it. And that's not our natural or natural inclination, right? Hey, Jeff, Chuck, man, I fucked this up. You know, I want to tell you all about it. it just doesn't happen much. But that's what we have to do to be able to uh, kind of get through that and stuff. And so, you know, it's interesting kind of it's cool that you're sitting here talking about this because hopefully what this causes Someone DMs you and says, man, I just did this. 
and you sit there and say, yeah, man, me too. Man, I was fucking right in the middle of it. You know, somebody DMs me. Hey, man, I was right in the middle of it. Because at the end of the day, you know, if we talk about it, about 99% of the time when we choose to tell someone this, their response is, yeah, man, me too. And that's the coolest thing about Patrick, my priest, is I'm sitting there going, man, I'm embarrassed about this. It's horrific. I can't believe I did this. And Patrick's like, well, I did this. I'm like, dude, you're a priest. And he goes, I know, that's fucked up, right? <laughs> and so, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, that all that hits home with me big time. Um, you know, the second thing that I would say is, you know, don't be afraid, right? Don't be, don't be scared, right? We all kind of fall into our comfort zones of, hey, I'm an energy guy and I need, I've spent 10, 15, 20 years of my life being an energy guy. There's a whole lot of stuff out in the world where, you know, if you have the right skill set, that all applies to other places as well. You know, um, you know, I, I went through a few years of, gosh, I'm an energy bear and I think the industry is going to go through a tough time. Do I really want to go to another place where I'm probably going to be a long only guy because finding short capital is tough? Um, and if I step into a, a, a another role where I'm managing money, I'll probably look like an idiot again if, in 2018 or 2019, right? So I started looking outside the industry. You know, what I'm doing now is, you know, joined another hedge fund guy and a group of software guys, and we're, you know, building out a platform, you know, let's call it a poor man's Bloomberg. And we've kind of seen what's happened on Twitter and, um, you know, the collaboration and the content creation and all that. And we're trying to kind of capture that, you know, just to give it a quick plug, unhedge.com, where, you know, we're trying to build a software platform out. And that's been, you know, new and interesting. And even at my age, right, to do something new, you can't be afraid to do that. And I think we all fall into that trap at the end of the day. I mean, you know, the the getting the boot at Kane and you know 24 48 hours later one of the cool kind of aha this is great type moments was you know what so much of what i did was inherited you know we did this because we're a private equity firm and kkr did it back in 1978 you know we did this because NGP or NCAP instituted this back in 1998, you know, and all that. And to have that blank sheet of paper to sit there and say, hey, here's the way we can do it is really, really liberating. And I said this today on Twitter. I was sitting there. Somebody said, should I get in the industry, out of the industry? I said, if you think that things are gonna go back to the way they were, then get the fuck out of the industry, because they're not. If you sit there and go, man, the industry's gonna do this, and I think we can create value this way, and you've got an entrepreneurial idea, yeah, stick in it, man. Because, you know, I'm gonna give this speech for hearts tomorrow, and I think it shows up on the 27th, where I'm basically gonna say, yeah, you know, shale was a bubble, lost a lot of value but at the end of the day guess what we're still going to use 100 million barrels of oil a day it ain't going anywhere just because you lost money and uh so i'm going to walk through all that so let's do this 
All right, so we're here. Sh the shale revolution started in gas, transitioned over to oil. Dude, what the fuck happened? <laughs> ton of factors. You know. Started out. Where do we start out on the shale you know, revolution? Again, this ties back to my career, right? So, uh, you know, early in my career, start covering energy. Let's talk about natural gas, right? So... You know, 2003, 2004, natural gas is seven bucks, call it. Right. Um, you know, upwards of 10 bucks. If a hurricane's coming through the Gulf, it's 15 bucks. Uh, you know, you think, you know, again, this isn't that long ago. You know, what is that? You know, 15, 18, 17 years ago. A kid. Right. 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 Yeah. People thought the U.S. was going to run out of natural gas in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. So... The industry changes way more than people recognize. Um, so, you know, you, shale comes really, t you know, I think of like the beginning of shale is 2006, 2007, Haynesville shale being first. Right. You know, when you think of the Haynesville shale, and even I fell into this trap, like, let's be honest, nobody was able to not fall in the trap because of what was happening in markets but you know you know deals get announced and wells get announced and and people just start doing acreage math and really don't you know segregate between you know is that tier one tier two tier three acreage i can remember back in the day when you know an announce would announcement would be made on a few wells and you know typically chesapeake back in those days or those types of players right. And the next thing you know, anybody that was in the neighborhood is up 30, 40, 50% in a couple of days, right? right? So, you know, the financial community bears a lot of blame for what happened, right? Because people bought into, hey, the shit's going crazy and I got to get into it or I'm going to miss the train, right? Well, you know, so you saying that, here's going to be my speech on hearts tomorrow and I'm going to record it at, uh, at, yeah, you know, two o'clock tomorrow because I figured I'd be hung over after you and I did this. By the way, we're going to do a major wine flex on the bond we're drinking tonight. But um, you know what's interesting is when you go through a bubble, when you look at a financial bubble and you go through the stages of it, you know, you've got this change in something that's like big, right? It's a new technology, the internet trains, tulip bulbs. I mean, whatever it is, there's this big sort of change. A lot of ambiguity around it in terms of what could happen. And then at the end of the day, the folks make money early on and the investment thesis becomes... Things have always gone up. We're going to buy because they're going to continue to go up. You know, so, I mean, that's kind of like bubble 101. And it only becomes a bubble when it crashes. I mean, right? NBA teams have never gone down in value. So, technically, it's not a bubble. But the reason I kind of bring that up, because you're sitting there talking about, you know, the Haynesville and all that. What was that thing that created the bubble what created the euphemism or the enthusiasm and you know what 
people say is, oh, it was technology, you know, horizontal drilling, it was fracking and all that. I always respond back this way. One, we've been drilling horizontal wells since the late 30s. I mean, offshore, 1937, we drilled a horizontal well. So we've always known how to do that, right? Fracking, you know what John Wilkes Booth did before he shot Abraham Lincoln? I don't. He was an actor, right? I mean, everybody knows that. His day job to pay for his acting career, because he wasn't a very good actor, he was throwing dynamites down down wells, in effect, fracking those wells. I mean, so fracking killed Lincoln. But none of these technologies that we had that, that caused the Haynesville to work and all that were necessarily new. It wasn't like somebody in the lab back in 2005 went, holy shit, look at this, we can do that. They were on the shelf. You know what caused all that? You know what the key to the bubble was? High natural gas prices. I mean, we live in the United States. We have private ownership of minerals. We have active capital markets. We have private and public oil and gas companies that are competing with each other. And at the end of the day, when we threw five, six, seven, eight, and I know that uh, July 14th, 2007 was $14 natural gas only because we closed the Obinco deal. When you threw a lot of cash, all of a sudden the companies had the incentive to go back into the tool shed and say, what the hell do we have back here that can make this better? You know, so I actually think higher natural gas prices were really the catalyst for the, for the bubble because all the technology existed nobody had any money or any reason to pay for it until then right i mean even before haynesville you had barnett taking place right so but but if you look at what caused it i think it's the sentiment of hey we went from a you know again if you look at energy broadly you can't just separate the u.s it's this kind of macro and socioeconomic of kind of what's happening across the world viewpoint so the sentiment of, okay, the U.S. can become, you know, a situation where we can produce our own energy and let's take a step back. I think what drives stock markets, what drives uh, bubbles is just capital plowing into spaces. And at the end of the day, it was true then back 10, 15 years ago. And it remains true today, although there's no bubble. The energy industry is one of the most capital intensive industries on the face of the planet, right? So the buy side, the folks that manage a ton of money, the pensions, the mutual funds, the insurance companies looked at an industry and said, gosh, I can put billions of dollars to work in this space. Um, so let me go do that. And so all of that capital inflow ultimately led to the bubble. Let's contrast that with the software space where the vast majority of those companies aren't bleeding cash. They don't need cash. You know, yeah, you can go invest in Microsoft or you can go invest in Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Those companies aren't raising new capital, right? So there's not that opportunity to continue to put money to work. And people looked at the energy industry and said, gosh, they need, you know, $500 billion a year because 
that's what they need a year to you know keep growing let me be a part of that and ultimately all that capital came in kind of all at once uh or over a number of years and led to this bubble combined with let's just call it disinformation what it is whether that's the street research whether that's the presentations that management teams put out um, whether it's just the ignorance of people that kind of didn't do the level of research that they needed to do you know companies putting out 24-hour ips or you know only highlighting their best wells and not talking about their worst wells there was a number of factors at the end of the day you know but i think it like well well no like that's good stuff let me be pollyanna let me be somewhat deferential to the industry one of the things you learn about bubbles is there's a lot of ambiguity on whatever whatever that disruption is new technology whatever right in the shale business the engineer that looked at drilling every well in the field based on current technology would say i wouldn't pay more than 500 dollars an acre the engineer that sat there and looked at every well and said yeah but they fracked at 500 pounds, we're going to take it to 2,000 pounds, so the EUR is not X, it's three times X. Man, we can pay like $3,000 an acre. They were the ones that bought, right? And that's the key to a, a bubble is that that ambiguity and the person that sees the rosiest vision for it is the ultimate winner. And the early on people that did that, i.e. Aubrey, among others, they were right. And they made a lot of money. And that's when it gets into the self-fulfilling prophecy or, as they like to say, exuberant, you know, whatever. That's when it gets into this whole thing. Of, well, I'm just going to buy because it's always going to go up. And... um you know, so early on, the winners, I actually think, were misinformed, even though they truly believed it, right? I mean, they truly believed bigger fracks were going to lead to this. But at the end of the day, I mean, they were stabbing in the dark. I'm not going to say it was the divining rod. There was there was more science done than that, right? Other than, whoa, here we go, you know. For sure. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned Aubrey. I think what a bunch of the industry missed is how successful they would be, quite frankly. Right. Like one of my favorite things, to, my, one of my favorite Aubrey stories is I was actually on this conference call, goes back a number of years. And just before an in earnings call, somebody put out a presentation and, you know, at the time gas is six or seven bucks and said, you know, gas is going to three or four because of supply. And Aubrey said on an earnings call, the only place that get natural gas will ever be below $6 is at the intersection of PowerPoint and Excel. And took a shot at the analyst that had put that work wow. out. <laughs> um, so, and I'll say this about Aubrey. I think he really believed that. For sure. I, yeah, I don't think that was like some snide remark or him trying to ingratiate himself with analysts or 
him trying to make money, I think he really believed it. Aubrey always believed, I think. No, for sure. But, you know, I mean, let, let's just touch on, you know, I can remember going to a Chesapeake Analyst Day and going out, you know, being wined and dined by Jeff Mobley. And, the, you know, Aubrey had a great wine collection as we sit here and great drink great wine, right? Like bringing the bottles out to, you know, me and the five or six guys that are with me, going to a Oklahoma Thunder game at the time, sitting front row, like there's things they can do to kind of, hey, these guys are great guys and, and let me invest in this company. I never fell for that shit, but like a lot of people fall into that. These guys must be successful because look at what they're able to pull off. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it didn't work out. You know, the one thing you can say about Aubrey and about his career is he always bet it all. Now you can say, well, his wife was a DuPont heir, and so he never actually was betting at all, but we'll leave that for another day. So the Shell Revolution starts with natural gas. We hit five, six, seven dollar natural gas. We start drilling horizontal wells. We start figuring out fracking. I mean, John Wilkes Booth was throwing down dynamite maybe you know whatever how many years later we actually figure out we got halliburton trucks out there pressure pumping doing all that so we kind of figure that out i remember being at kane kind of circa let's call it 07 08 and if you actually hit oil out of a well that was the worst thing you could do because you do a thousand barrels a day, two thousand barrels a day of oil, and four days later, it would be down to like twenty barrels of oil a day. I mean, it was just horrific how that didn't work out and all that. So there was actually kind of, if you think about sort of oh seven, oh nine, in there, it was like all this technology works on gas. Gas prices are going down. It doesn't work on oil and all that, but lo and behold, the engineers figured it out. So let's keep going on shale. You know, we're 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 sitting there in shale in 08, 09. What do you think's going on? So, so you know, again, I think you gotta take a macro perspective. We come out of 08, 09, Fed's printing money again to get us out of that recession. Rates go low. All of a sudden, you know, capital is cheap, right? And you know, capital needs a place to go home. I'll, you know, let's take a step away from shale real quick just to hit on kind of my view. Actually, like 08, 09, after that downturn, I wrote a letter to a bunch of friends and family and said, like, here's kind of what I think is going to happen coming out of this. And I recommended people get involved in MLPs because I'm like, people are going to be scared of equities uh, for for a couple of years, but you get like this yield with an equity kicker, and you you know you look at like what MLPs were a bubble in my play, my opinion, right? Because every financial advisor in the country, every guy sitting around with their you know office wherever on the corner street that had you know their friends, family, neighbors needed to put money to work, and again it gets back to my view of like bubbles need capital. Uh, and in you know a big inflow of capital to, to to kind of effectuate themselves 
every guy said like, all right, I can put money in here. I can get a 7% yield and I get this equity upside. And that worked for a number of years, but you went from the MLP space being toll road. They were considered toll roads. So mostly tariff based pipelines. Right. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's so much capital being, you know, coming into the space. You're doing sand companies, you're doing offshore rig companies, you're doing, you know, service companies, you're doing just garbage that does that has all this commodity exposure. And as that place space imploded, as the as the MLP space imploded, the financial and, you know, FA community financial advisor community took a step back and said, I don't understand this shit at all, right? So right. the retail community left um, and there's no bid for it, right? Because it's still, because of the K-1s, it's still largely a retail product. So you had a bunch of money come in, buy it up, turn it into a bubble, it all left, that bubble imploded. I can tell you a story of, like I said, I was active in the Norwegian rig space. I went over to Norway conference one year I, I don't know 2013 2014 this is when offshore rigs were being mlp'd and i had a bunch of norwegians they knew i was an american i was one of the only americans over there at this conference and they were like what the fuck is going on in the mlp space do these people understand that these assets aren't worth nearly what they're paying for them you know it was like a huge joke over there what americans were paying in an mlp structure for the assets that they would layer in there. It was like literally right. a joke. Um, so, you know, people just got fooled. So, you know, but back to shale. So we go from gas to, you know, again, let's take a step back. You know, where do we go from shale? We go to the Bakken starts to be the first, I think, oil shale play. So Bar Bakken starts to get discovered. It's kind of interesting. Eagleford becomes, a, you know, the next shale play, um, you know, and, and the crazy thing is the best shale play of all oil shale plays in this country was the Permian, which was the last one to be considered an oil shale play, right, which is kind of bizarre to me. You go back to early in my career, Pioneer was considered like one of the biggest piece of shit companies in the entire space, right? Like there was. Do we like the Sprayberry? Do we hate the Sprayberry? Yeah, I remember that. You know, XTO needs to buy them out. They're not going to survive. They're doing they're doing all these VPPs and all these structured deals to kind of deleverage, as they called it. Um, you know, so. At the end of the day, it's technology, though, right? Which, right. which, which led to this. Um, so you know what I think happened? Here's what I, ha I think happened in the MLP space. And I want to be really clear here. I mean, Kane Anderson, private equity, oil and gas, early stage assets, right? That's what I did. We were very siloed up. So... You probably know more about what Kevin McCarthy and Jim Baker were doing on the MLP side of Kane Anderson. So I want to be really clear that, like, I have no insider knowledge over there. We were very siloed up. And, you know, I'm not ca casting asparage, uh, disparaging remarks at Kane, but my sense of just kind of sitting there was, holy shit. We have an infrastructure 
that sends natural gas from Texas and Oklahoma to Boston, right? And then all of a sudden, holy shit, Appalachia pops up, and we've got a ton of natural gas there, and we take care of Boston, and then what do we do with the rest? Okay, maybe we get it down to the Gulf Coast so we can do all this shit with it and export it. And I think struggling with all that, every MLP spent a lot of dollars reversing flows on lines, all that sort of stuff, that at the end of the day, if everybody was intellectually honest and we did all the math, we'd find out that was probably a negative 25% rate of return, right? You know, and I, I think underlying MLPs not doing well I think there are two factors. There's this whole thing of 85% of MLPs revenue comes from natural gas, has nothing to do with oil. Now there's associated natural gas with oil, so I don't want to say it's unrelated. Oil prices falling, all that causes some hysteria and change valuations. But at the end of the day, I think what those guys did they spent a lot of money replumbing the whole United States. And you look up and you go, well, shit, why'd you really do that? Because you didn't make any money. It's funny you mentioned that because I, you know, jotted down some thoughts of kind of the huge whiffs that the industry's made over my career. And one of those was the Rex pipeline, right? Like, in, and you want to talk about some of the reason for the bubble and some of the reason that supply, you know, exceeded demand. I mean, look no further than a guy like Mike Watford at UPL, who for years said like, I've got the lowest cost gas in the country. I don't really give a shit what those app guys are doing. I'm gonna spend 75 cents to a buck, whatever it was on a tariff to send my gas from Wyoming to fucking the Northeast. And, you know, Appalachia comes around and he just didn't give a shit. And like, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. You know, um, and, and that pipeline is, I think, almost worthless. Right. Like it, it wasn't needed. You know, right. so you have all these shifts that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, because the amount of capital that is needed in this space you have to make these 10 or 15, 20 year views to justify these capital allocations. And we have had like the sand moving under the industry's feet at, 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 you know, quicker than 10 or 15 year movements, right? At the end of the day, I mean, look no further than um, building cokers in this country. And, and lo and behold, all of the US oil is light sweet and you don't need them, right? Um, look no further than 2009 to 2014 building you know a shit ton of uh, offshore rigs that cost 700 million bucks a pop and nobody wants to do long-term projects anymore because you got short cycle shell um you know look no further than lng exports which again is kind of early in my career where you know you you have to take this 10 or 15 year view and the industry through technology and various other changes are moving quicker than long-term projects can kind of adjust to. All of a sudden those LNG export terminals now are LNG import terminals, right? So, you know, I think part of like the reason the bubble occurred is because 
you know, the industry had kind of settled into, gosh, if there's a big project in the world, it's going to take 10 or 15 or 20 years to play out. And all of a sudden shale comes around and those wells take, you know, a lot less than that, right? You know, you can drill a well in 20 days and put it on production in, you know, a month and a half, right? So I think the industry just kind of, you know, the old schoolers, and, and let's take a step back, back to my Mike Watford comment. This industry is full of wildcatters who are willing to take a ton of risk, right? And they, they've they been burnt before, and it's, you know, you go through these cycles of ups and downs and ups and downs, and it's like, all right, this is the way it's going to be. And they weren't willing to, I think, accept, like, shit is really changing. You know, and I've had some conversations with some folks that I know at companies where, you know, maybe a junior, you know, less senior person, uh, you know, I've, I've asked some folks of like, gosh, did you know how bad the industry was getting? And they were like, I kind of did. But all the senior folks at the company were saying, like, this is just the way it is. Like, it's just another cycle. Right. Right. And I think like there's been a bigger shift than just saying this is just another cycle. Um you know, look no further than, you know, what's going on in renewables, what's going on with, you know, really all the majors moving away from, you know, 10, 15 year projects into shorter term, shorter cycle projects. You can't make those same types of decisions anymore in this day and age to say, hey, I'm going to go do this, you know, offshore project that's going to take five years to drill and five years to tie in and then it's going to be a great economic how can you make that decision anymore well you know what's interesting because you know what's so funny is um uh, i was on a uh, david ramson woods podcast this week as a guest and he said what have you learned as a podcaster and i said i say you know what's interesting like 587 times during a podcast. So I'm sorry I said it again, but you know, I've said this on like numerous podcasts and I'll say it again to get your reaction because I really believe this is the deal. I mean, if you think about oil and gas and you think about energy, historically, you owned a lottery ticket, right? I mean, literally, spindle top happens, you own that acreage, you're fucking rich, right? And then, you know, as we go along in this business, the Saudis decide an embargo, oil prices triple overnight, you're rich. It's always lottery ticket. It's not fundamental good business. What do we need to do to cut costs, generator return all that you know we come up with 3d seismic boom you know all right we found a bright spot you know we can go drill you know we have a shale under the acreage i.e to your pioneer example you know oh we got a shale we can go drill horizontal blah 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 you know all that i think we have always operated as this lottery ticket business we can be rich Unless it makes us rich or gives us more of a lottery ticket, we don't really have to operate a business very well. And I think that shit has stopped. And 
I almost hate to say it because every time a management team walked into my office and said, this time it's different, I was always like, no, it never is, right? You know, it's never different. But I think this time it's actually different. I mean, we don't run a lottery ticket business anymore. We need to run a good business. If you have production assets, every cent matters. You need to maximize technology on it. You need to maximize uh, the reduction of cost, all that sort of stuff. And I think that is a fundamental change. And if you don't recognize that change, you're going to be screwed. I mean, you're going to, okay, maybe you can take your company bankrupt again. But I mean, literally, I mean, if... If you're not matching up hedging with your forecasted production and you miss by 5%, that's the difference between going bankrupt and maybe not. So, I mean, I think we're in a different world today because of that. I, I, don't, I don't disagree. Um, you know, I, I, I think the industry has to adjust because, again, it is so capital intensive and you look at what's, what has happened with ESG and you look at what's going on with renewables. ESG, I mean, just looked at this last couple of days. It's between 12 and $14 trillion of assets that are now kind of saying like, hey, I don't want to invest in energy unless you're, you know, going to, down the path of zero cost emission and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, at the end of the day, unless you are free cash flow positive, which isn't completely in your control. I mean, at the end of the day, these businesses don't have the same control over how their business operates and the outcomes for investors because they're subject to macro situations, right? It's not a software business. It's not a manufacturing business. They are subject to things outside their control, which again, kind of, you know, goes in dovetails into some of the reasons like, I'll push back on governance. You see these guys that are making, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that like for stuff outside their control, um, you know, but at the end of the day, these guys, you know, th these guys make decisions that impact the business that, you know, they need to, you know, you know, they need to justify and, you know, it, it's not always in the best interest for investors for you to grow, grow, grow and just care about production growth instead of return on capital. Um, and, and, and again, the investment community bears some of the responsibility because that's what they were paid to do. That's what they were asked to do at the end of the day. Um, so one research analyst, and I love him to death, so I won't say the name. Good dude. He and I are having a private conversation. One of those things of we're over beers, me and you. So I think he's cool if I say what happened, so long as I don't name him. But uh, we're talking about oil and gas companies, right? And I sit there, and he's talking about production growth. And I go, look, dude, I mean... Production growth at the expense of returns and all that is really horrible. I mean, if you're going to sell crack to people, 
you need to take the responsibility that you're selling crack to people. And his response was, I may produce the crack, you don't have to smoke it. And I was like, we really laughed about that and and all. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's that whole thing of of we had these unrealistic expectations, we had very limited information and and all that. So let's do this. We've talked about how we got here. Fucked up situation. A lot of things. I will say I don't think it was as malicious as people tend to make it out to be. Reasonable decisions were made along the way that didn't work out. All that. What's the next 10 years? Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed part one of the Jeff Davies episode of Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. We'll be back next week. We'll talk the future, MLPs. We'll talk oil-filled helping hands and the $200,000 Jeff raised. And, which is really cool, we're going to talk Jeff's playlist. Who would have thought Energy Credit One, Rap, and Reggae Guy? We'll see you next week.